1: Episode 198 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Morning, morning. How's the uh, Lone Star State?
0: Uh, it's cooling down. So um, it's
1: 90? Yes. <laughs> Houston has very similar weather to Tallahassee. Uh,
0: it's, be- it's between 85 and 90 through the rest of this week.
1: I just remember it being 95 on our first Thanksgiving in Tallahassee. And that's when I knew <laughs> that that state was not for me.
0: Oh, man.
2: Yeah. The, uh,
1: the O Manor is Nathan <laughs> Gilmore, an associate professor of English at Emmanuel uh, College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are hmm. the mountains? The foothills?
2: Oh, I mean, I, I drive them every morning and then I drive them on back home, so I I suppose they're still there.
1: It takes <laughs> centuries and centuries for them to erode away.
0: <laughs> and in all of Nathan's long life, he still hasn't seen that. <laughs>
2: Man! But the many lives he's lived. It's
0: starting already. <laughs> well, our
1: topic today comes from the book of Nature's Todd Peddler, who wanted us to do an episode on Kafka. Uh, I picked the Kafka story I'm most conversant with the one I teach from time to time, which is in the penal colony um, and we 're going to do it a little differently today uh, I, I guess I'm just going to give a plot summary, and then we 're going to give a series of readings because I think that this this story really supports multiple types of interpretation, which is one reason it's fun to teach so uh the plot of the story is there is a penal colony uh, somewhere in the tropics. For some reason, I always picture it as being on a foreign planet. Uh, It it is kind of a science fiction story, so I guess that's not uh, entirely a stupid thing to to think. Anyway, uh, the penal colony is visited by someone who is called only the explorer, and the plot of the story is that an officer in the penal colony is showing him an instrument of torture and capital punishment. Uh, There is a condemned man awaiting torture and uh and death in this machine although uh if you the the way i read the story he's not actually actually aware that that's what's about to happen to him or he's Mm -hmm. only semi-aware of it so what Mm -hmm. this machine does is um you are stripped uh naked i believe you're laid down on the machine and a harrow comes down and over the course of 12 hours writes your sentence on your on your body and uh tortures you and kills you the writing of the sentence on the body it's like a really terrible tattoo what we we learn over the course of the story what we learn over the course of the story is that the person who invented this machine has died and the new uh, commandant who is running the running the penal colony doesn't like the machine and the explorer is actually there to report on whether or not he thinks the machine is worth keeping around well, it becomes clear to the officer over the course of the story that, that the explorer is not going to be on his side in this matter. And so at the end of the story, spoiler alert, although certainly by the time I started doing the plot summary, if you hadn't read the story, you should have turned it off and gone and read it. Um, he, uh, the, 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 command, the officer himself, excuse me, lies down on the machine and is very quickly killed by, him, by it. It doesn't take 12 hours. It, it, it does it in a matter of minutes instead. Uh, and then the explorer uh, leaves the leaves the island. So, uh, did I leave out anything important?
2: Um, uh, nothing that I am not going to use as fodder for one of my answers later. So keep rolling. Okay. Yeah.
1: All of the, all of Kafka's stories that I have read have this kind of parable feel to them. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the problem is. It's not usually clear what's being allegorically or semi-allegorically expressed through those parables, and uh, Kafka's not here for us to ask him. So what we're going to do is, as I said, is read in the penal colony through several different lenses, treating it as several different types of parables. And I want to start with uh, the story as a parable about technology. What do we need to pay attention to, if that's the way we're reading it?
0: Well, pay attention to, for one thing, the thing that the story itself pays much attention to, and if not the uh, viewpoint character who is the nameless explorer, at least the person who's taken on the role of tour guide in this in this story, which is uh, which is the officer who runs this horrible machine. And so the the main concern of this officer. Uh, Throughout the story is to explain uh, the how, how how this machine works, um, its parts, uh, its not not only its function in terms of in terms of punishment and all the rest of it, but also how the specific um, pieces in it function together. Um, how sometimes they don't work and the wheel squeaks. Um, you know, this needle does this thing. This other needle does this other thing. This is why we have cotton wool here and water there. And, uh, yeah, the the story itself is 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 just obsessed with um, making you look at this machine. Um, I'd never read this story before, so I felt pretty closely identified with this explorer. Um, as I was kind of watching in breathless horror as this person explained to me this torture device, um, yeah. So the the obsession with the machine, um, the attention to the meta- mechanics for its own end, is is really interesting. Uh, how the officer is much much less interested in in you knowing or understanding anything about the principle, um, about the the about the law code that in that you know, that results in this, um, he's much, much more interested in the mechanics of it, uh, how, how this machine functions just for the sake of it functioning. Um, and for him, this machine has become, uh, almost a master that he serves. He talks about, uh, how he, you know, continue, how he struggles to maintain it with the, the new commandant of this penal colony, um, Refusing to supply them the parts that he needs, and and how he has to make do, and 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 kind of keep this thing running for the sake of itself, almost. Mm-hmm. So, um, so some of those kinds of observations of of, of technology, um, becoming a master uh, and 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 not a servant, uh, I, I think those things are being um, kind of on display here. Taking it in a different angle, uh, there's a way in which this machine is presented as a kind of transcendence, which reminded me a lot of the conversation that I had with Alan, Alan Gregory on profiles um, when we ta- talked about his science fiction theology book. Um, the idea of, of of technology as a as a means of transcendence, as a way to for humans to access that which is normally beyond their um, experience and the, and the ways that uh, this machine encodes in you this truth of law and justice as it writes on you. Right. Um, And then the ways that uh, the officer describes what it's like at the end of the process when uh, he says that by the end of the process, The prisoner who cannot previously understand what's going on does understand, and they can read what's being written on them, and they have this this kind of uh, vision. Their consciousness is augmented in a kind of way by this by this mechanized process.
1: Not even at the end, like halfway through. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so the second
1: half of your torture, you're fully aware of why it's happening to you, and it's not clear whether that's supposed to be like mm-hmm. freeing or even
0: worse. Well, I mean they, they they he's got this this horrific description of of everybody, uh, you know, the old way that they did it was everybody would just sort of gather around and watch and, you know, I know that we'll probably return to this later, but he uh he talks about uh how when uh when they were when they were watching this that uh, oh, where's the where's that piece um, about the look of transfiguration uh, that would come on the face of the sufferer uh, as they were as they were being put through this process, and then um, how how one would almost want to uh, one was almost tempted to to, to undertake the torture themselves. Um. You know, it begins in the eyes. From there, it radiates. Uh, a moment that might tempt one to get under the harrow. Nothing more uh, happens than that. the The man begins to understand the inscription and purses his mouth as if he was listening. You know, and enlightenment comes even to the most dull witted. So it's described in this uh, in this um, in this way as a, as a, as if an epiphany is received through this mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, that even those who are watching um, could be envious of. Um, so, so there, it's uh, I, I guess it's 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 the machine in a couple of different ways, and maybe uh, in our own day, um, as we as we as we've done more thinking about machines as as ways of augmenting consciousness, um, of transcending our 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 human limitations of sense. Um, you know maybe maybe it does good, maybe it does us good to 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 reread this. you
1: mm-hmm.
0: know and, and perhaps in a way that uh, the original uh, the original readers might not have. Um, what else might might we say about the machine side of things, Nathan?
2: A couple little details that I would just add in there. One is it is one of the unnerving details, not by any means the only unnerving detail as the officers explaining the machine is that, uh, he doesn't even pay full attention to the Explorer, but at reg, you know, uh, at intervals, I'll put it that way. So on occasion, uh, the narrator will say he stopped here to tighten a bolt. He stopped here to mm-hmm. drive in a screw with a spanner. Uh, so I mean, he is, uh, he, he imagines himself as a mechanic as much as he imagines himself a military officer. Which is, you know, quite frightening. And then, I mean, just the—you kind of hinted at it, David. But I just want to drive it home more explicitly that when the Mm -hmm. technological world falls apart for the officer, his drive is to throw himself on the machine and be destroyed by it.
0: Yes, to become one with it in a kind of way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's
1: a weird, Mm -hmm. quasi-sexual relationship he has with the machine. He he keeps saying one would be tempted, one would be tempted, but I think it's pretty clear that only one person would be tempted to do this. That nobody else in this entire colony likes this machine. It's just him and the uh, psychopathic mm-hmm. commandant who invented it. You know,
2: oh, right, right, right. Certainly, the
1: explorer is not tempted to throw himself on it. Although I guess he doesn't. He never a- sees it operating properly. Did you did you notice too it's the same it's the same technology he says that makes hospital beds go up I missed and down?
2: That. Yeah, I didn't pay attention to that either.
1: Yeah. I I think that's right. It's on page uh one forty three. It quivers a minute. Uh, I'm sorry, we're using the um the 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 uh the shockin edition of right. uh Kafka's Complete Stories. Mm-hmm. So it's page one one forty three at the bottom he says both the bed and the designer have an electric battery each. The bed needs one for itself, the designer for the harrow. As soon as the man is strapped down, the bed is set in motion. It quivers in in minute, very rapid vibrations, both from side to side and up and down. You will have seen similar apparatus in hospitals. But in our bed, the movements are all precisely calculated.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh.
2: So
1: no matter how good your technology is, eventually it's going to be co-opted by... Um, well, the, by the military, for one, but by somebody who's going to use it for some nefarious and dehumanizing purpose, mm-hmm. which seems true to life to me. <laughs> well, Kafka's great theme is certainly unexplainable individual guilt. People who don't know anything else about Kafka know that. <laughs> How can we read Penal Colony as a parable about justice and guilt?
2: Nathan? Yeah, this is the question where I'm, I'm I'm just waiting for Danny Anderson to pop around the corner and saying, Why are you reading Kafka without me? Uh, but (laughs) there's a few characters where, uh, you know, this is on display pretty blatantly. Uh, and then, I mean, one of them where it's a lot more persistent and a lot more worth discussion on one hand, uh, you've got the prisoner himself, uh, whose guilt is in a fairly straightforward way, unexplained. I mean, you get, uh, intimations throughout the story that this guy who is being strapped to this machine has no idea why he's being strapped to the machine We've already discussed that the officer uh, has this idea that, okay, um, he will eventually come to learn just because of the great power of the machine. Uh, but in a very uh, Dantean literal sense, this is a case of unexplained guilt. Um, you've also got the guilt of the officer because one of the conversations that he has with the explorer is this idea that he is somehow on trial with the new commandant and you know, presumably with the rest of the you know, social machinery of the penal colony. Uh, as the only person who still supports and is enthusiastic about the machine, he tries to enlist the explorer uh, basically to be an advocate for him. He, he gives him sort of a uh, pre-trial deposition coaching. Uh, <laughs> this is what they will ask you. And this is how I want you to answer because I know that you're on my side. Um, and honestly, I, I, I have to admit that uh, that section, you know, reminded me more than anything else of uh, political conversations I have at a Christian college because uh, if you are one of the professors who destabilizes received ideas, people who are ardent partisans assume that you're really destabilizing the other guy's ideas. Um, and they always <laughs> assume that you are uh, – covertly on my side it it makes for some awkward stuff but uh the one that really i mean sustained some uh some deliberation is the guilt of the explorer himself because the explorer is horrified by this machine he's horrified at the fact that this man has no idea why he's on the machine but all throughout the story he sort of politely uh you know, nods and assents to the you know ravings of the officer. While you know you get a sort of narration of his inner state that he is sort of planning, okay, you know, when I go back to the commandant, how am I going to bring this up in a way that isn't immediately going to be dismissed as, well, this is just a foreigner, he doesn't understand. So he has a sense that, you know, as the outsider, he has a certain responsibility, but to compound that he's also got a sense that as the outsider, uh, they're not going to listen to him because he is not of this world. So it's that sort of double consciousness of the, I guess, you know, the, the, the visitor from the core planets, right? Uh, on Mm -hmm. one hand, people value your opinion because you're from the place of civilization. On the other hand, people are going to consider you naive because you're from civilization. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, when he finds out that the officer is really the only one who wants to run this machine at all, uh, he, he does, I mean, tell him, you know, I mean, in a, in a very gentle way, considering that they are cutting a man to pieces in front of them, uh, that, you know, I intend to go to your commandant and tell him that, you know, we need to take this thing apart. And then you get, the bizarre scene where he watches for entirely too long i thought and i might be reading this wrong i'll ask you guys to correct me if i am but he watches entirely too long as the officer puts himself on the machine as the machine malfunctions and as the officer is torn to pieces and killed by the machine i mean the presumably he stood there and watched as the officer you know threw the switches to activate the battery operated parts of this thing you know, I mean, knowing a little bit about electrical machines, most uh, simple electric machines have toggle switches. You could turn it off. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the, there's a very uh, understated sense of guilt that goes on there at the end that really kind of plays out, you know, at the very end when he sort of encounters the, um, the commandant cult in the little bar uh, and I mean, he, he can't even speak to it. He basically has to get on the boat and get the heck out of town because I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I would call it the guilt. I mean, has become superhuman, something that he can't resist anymore. Um, so David, I mean, what do you think about all that? I mean, have I missed any, uh, guilty parties? <laughs> well,
0: the, the, the whole, um, the whole problem of course of the, of Of the unexplainable guilt is is the is the gap between the declaration of the law and the penalty Mm -hmm. and the one who suffers that penalty, um, you know, and the and and the story is is concerned with, um, especially initially the the explorer is is very concerned that um, this this criminal has not gotten um, even even a semblance of due process Mm -hmm. does not know that he has been condemned for a crime has never had, has never even been asked for his, his side of the story. Um, you know, so the, the, the complete disjunct between, um, the knowledge of the sufferer and, and the, the nature of the punishment, um, is actually something that, um, at least as I understand it, in terms of philosophies of justice and, and punishment and things like that that, um, that, that a punishment that is not actually tied to the conscious awareness of the one suffering the punishment, um, understanding what's happening to them, that that's actually a compelling, um, that's a compelling case that it's not punishment. Mhm. Um you know, uh, I I read a you know, what I thought was a pretty articulate um a pretty articulate case for um um why eternal punishment would not be happening to people who um who don't have um in this life the 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 sort of mental capacity to be able to discern good from evil because they would um, in the next life, if they were being punished for anything, have no idea what it was. And then it would not be punishment and therefore not be just. Um, and th- this seems to be a case of that. Because this guy has no idea what's happening to him. Um, has no idea how how he's done anything that to, to lead to it. It just, from his perspective, it's completely arbitrary.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, the word justice is important because the officer's sentence that's written on his body is be just
2: oh yeah yeah yeah.
1: whatever that means Mm -hmm. um back to the explorer not intervening when the officer gets on the machine it's not just that he doesn't intervene Mm -hmm. he approves uh page 163 the explorer bit his lips and said nothing, he knew very well what was going to happen, but he had no right to obstruct the officer in anything. If the judicial procedure which the officer cherished were really so near its end, possibly as a result of his own intervention, as to which he felt himself pledged, then the officer was doing the right thing. In his place, the explorer would not have acted otherwise. Mm. So, like, the explorer refuses to judge is not the right term, because he is judging. He thinks the machine is bad, and yet... He can't. He can't bring himself to judge the officer's actions in relationship to the machine. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the final scene is even weirder to me because the um, the condemned man and the soldier who was guarding him both try to leave with the explorer, mm-hmm. and he kicks them off the boat.
0: Yeah. Th- this is one of those kind of nightmare stories in which the in which the, the, the protagonist, um, it, it seems to me just wants to get out and wants to have nothing to do with anything else in this scenario. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, escape from this Island and all that it means is, and kind of needs to be for the, for the Explorer. And I think for the reader, um, as sharp a break as waking up, (laughs)
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I would not want anything from this scenario to follow me into the rest of my life.
1: yeah, I, I mean, and and most of Kafkas stories have that feel, yeah, M- most of them most of them feel like stress nightmares. Yes, yeah. The fact that the story takes place at a penal colony suggests that Kafka is interested in the internal mechanisms of power. Um David how is this story a parable about power go full foucault on us <laughs> Well uh,
0: there's there's the uh there's the analogy that's uh, it's 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 on the second page man I mean you 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 <laughs> barely even made it into the story um when the the apparatus the admirable apparatus which has been you know introduced in the very first line it's a remarkable piece of apparatus um On the second page, uh, the officer explains that the apparatus was invented by the former commandant. I assisted in the very earliest experiments, had a share in all the work until its completion. Um, uh, Have I ever have you you ever heard of our former commandant? No. Well, it isn't saying too much if I tell you that the organization of the whole penal colony is his work. We who were his friends knew even before he died that the organization of the colony was so perfect that his successor, even with a thousand new schemes in his head, would find it impossible to alter anything, at least for many years to come. Our prophecy Mm. has come true. So first, you've got this comparison between the apparatus, the machine itself, and then... uh, invented by the commandant and the commandant also invented the organization of the penal colony itself so you've got the two set alongside each other um as you say uh, as mechanisms right mm-hmm. um also the idea that uh the the organization of the penal colony is a self-perpetuating um mechanism uh, of power that even even the one who's at the top now even the new commandant who doesn't like this organization um, is at least for a while powerless to, to change much. Um, There seems to be a kind of momentum um, uh, in, in, in this organization of power that things, things will keep going the way that they are um, for quite some time. Um, Hopefully not forever, but, but still there is a kind of, um, as I said, there's a kind of momentum in this. Um, the way that uh, power works in the story, which you know, again, you know, being Foucault, um, is that it's power over bodies, and it's and it's not even pretending to have any concern with power over minds, and attitudes. Um, this is a this is a penal colony. It's a glorified prison. It's about um, it's about uh, separating and incarcerating um, the, the convicted criminals from the rest of the population. So that's already something that's going on, um, power over the body. And then this, uh, the, this ultimate um, sort of execution, this machine that the officer is showing off, um, ha- it too has this kind of ultimate power over the body um, inscribing the law into it. Um, isn't even concerned with um, explaining anything to the mind of the person um, before the mechanism of of power is engaged on the body itself. Um, but the officer takes it further because he wouldn't say it that I'm using power, I'm not using communication, but the power is the communication and that... Um, and that in the process of, uh, of this machine working, he thinks that something actually does reach the consciousness of the prisoner being tortured slash executed. Um, Power is knowledge,
1: as uh, Foucault says. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, so he thinks that this, this is making the transition. What kind of knowledge? Um, I don't know. Apparently only the person who's gone through the machine knows that, and they don't say much. Mm -hmm. um, but it's unintelligible because the, the officer shows what's been inscribed on the, you know, just in the time that he was in there shows what's been, what's being scribed onto the, 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 the prisoner. Um, and the officer thinks he, the officer claims that he can read it. Um, but the explorer can't. Um, so there's a, even a kind of inarticulateness to someone who's not in that system. Um, so so probably the, the the place where you most see the power at work is when the officer puts himself in the machine, and the soldier continues to operate in his in his defined role in the system. And even the prisoner steps in because he understands how he doesn't understand why this machine works, but he understands how this machine works. And it has enthralled his imagination and he wants to take part in. Um, in it continuing, um, which I think is why they want to get in the boat and leave with the Explorer at the end, because with Mm. the machine gone and the officer gone, they have literally nothing else to define who they are and what they ought to be. Um, and the only person that they can attach themselves to is the only person in the world who understands their position who is mm-hmm. the explorer who saw the the end of everything they understood going away so yeah when the, when the power structure ends all those all those that it has shaped are now um you know they're like ants when you wipe the scent trail away <laughs> anybody who's read Listen. more foucault than me wanna <laughs> <laughs> Take
2: well, the, the other thing I do go to is, uh, again, the uh, Commandant cult at the end.
0: Oh, uh, yeah.
2: You know, what they say about the Commandant is, th- and I'm quoting here, uh, there is a prophecy that after a certain number of years, the Commandant will rise again and lead his adherents from this house to d- recover the colony, have faith and wait. So there's an idea that uh, something is there to be recovered. And, I mean, as David just, you know, s- spelled out so well uh whatever that something is isn't a language that anyone other than people inside the system can understand uh it's not something that has any kind of um i guess you know principle governing it it is simply a raw exercise of of power uh it is a machine even as it's built around a machine uh and for that reason you know the well, I mean, you know, the, the power is what they want to return, even though I, I suspect that they couldn't give a reason why that kind of power is better. It's simply more powerful.
1: Hmm. I, I'm very interested in the fact that the officer and the explorer speak only in French to each other, mm-hmm. which, it, as it's explicitly pointed out, as a language the soldier and the condemned man don't speak. So there's this sort of priesthood, to, to use another of Foucault's favorite images hmm. where, wherein um, only, only those in power are able to communicate to each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'll also point out that the condemned man is condemned at least in part because he doesn't obey authority. He like falls asleep when he's supposed to be guarding somebody's room. But there's, there's a conflict within the officer about whose authority should be obeyed the dead commandant who invented the machine and who has appointed him as its tender mm. or the uh, or the new commandant who hates the machine and tells him not to use it mm-hmm. so so what what happens what happens to power when there are two authorities who could uh, meaningfully be speaking to the officer mm-hmm. in, in that sense that that sentence be just um, is an impossible impossible task for him. Mm-hmm. You could only be just. I mean, think about like Hobbes in Leviathan. You could only be just if there's a if there's a set of laws for you, to, to, that determines justice. Mm-hmm. But in effect, our officer is dealing with two different sets of laws that contradict each other. Mm-hmm. By the way, the sentence sentence pun unfortunately does not exist in German.
2: No. No. Oh, really? That's too
1: bad. Yeah, I looked it up because it seems so perfect, doesn't it? At least I don't, I don't speak German. Um, so maybe Jay Eldred or somebody will write in and tell us. But I, uh, I, when, I when I looked it up, it was two different words
0: hmm. Interesting. or
1: sentence. So too bad, right? Indeed. <laughs> well, the word colony in the title is certainly significant, and a number of critics have argued that this story is a parable about colonialism. Do they have any kind of leg to stand on, Nathan?
2: i I think they do. I mean, this was the reading that I uh, gravitated towards. Uh, I read the story or reread the story. I'd read it a couple times in the past uh, before I looked at the show notes. and this was I mean the way to read it that recommended itself to me. First of all, that detail that Michael just brought up that the explorer and the officer speak to each other in French uh, while the soldier and the prisoner. Can't understand it. I mean, right there, you've already got French, which is you know one of the modern imperial powers. Uh, certainly one of the modern imperial powers in in Africa and Asia, which you know uh, certainly I mean is is one of the realities that made Edward Said's work and post colonialism more broadly possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, beyond that, uh, when the so when the uh, condemned man uh, does get caught sleeping. Uh, what the you know accuser reports to the officer when he turns him over to be condemned is that he threatened not only to do violence to him, which would have been insubordination, uh, but he also threatened—I mean, a very uh, brutal sort of violence—and I'm I'm thinking it was even cannibalism that he yes threatened him with. Yeah. Okay. 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 So I'm. See, now I'm worried now that I invoked Edward Said. I'm like, now am I putting cannibalism on the savage? Uh, I, will. But
0: <laughs> I will eat you alive.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, you definitely have a an anxiety here uh, that the subaltern, to use another famous post-colonial word, uh, are actually subhuman insofar as they will eat the flesh of their own species. Uh, Now, I mean, there's no sense that the condemned man actually eats people, uh, but that's the accusation you get. Beyond that, of course, you've got this explorer coming in uh, who is a figure, you know, to a large extent of the age of, you know, European dominance in world history, right? Uh, Certainly there are people who explore things before 1492, but when you talk about famous explorers, my hunch is if any of the three of us tried to name ten of them, uh, probably seven of them would come from the last 400 years. I mean, this is something that Europeans do. Uh, it's something that usually involves lands that are inhabited, uh, but they're, that are inhabited by people who are different and therefore that become Eastern rather than Western. Um, so at any rate, I mean, you've got all of those parts uh, that certainly add up to a post-colonial reading, I'll go ahead and say as well that you know the fact that the officer, and again, I mean that this inscription, I mean, I keep coming back to, but it's a it's it's really a, an en- enigmatic and an important part of this narrative. The inscription is not something that the explorer can read, and that's important because it has become part of the colony. Uh, on the other hand, it's also not something that the condemned man can read, so it's still part of the colonizer. So in a real way, the machine is occupying the space that is neither the empire nor the colony, but it has become sort of its own intermediate power, its own demonic force in the story uh, that is inexplicable in either direction and therefore sort of becomes self-contained. Again, if you look at you know, um, whether you're talking about Orwell's stories about you know, working as the police in Burma or whether you look at you know more theoretical treatments of post-colonial reality, you get those sort of intermediate uh, institutions rising up, right? You know whether it's mm-hmm. the Tutsis in Rwanda, uh, whether it is you know the uh, the I'll uh, oh, shoot, I'm 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 blanking on the the uh, the Indian soldiers uh, who had the rebellion, the sepoys in India. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Uh, the history of, of colonialism, pardon me, always involves these intermediate institutions that rise up and sort of take on their own demonic power in there. So, I mean, it's, like I said, I mean, the, this is the reading that recommended itself to me before I even knew that we were going to be doing the plurality of readings approach. So I, I definitely think there's a leg to stand on there, and it's got unintelligible markings tattooed on it. Hmm. Uh, David, what do you got?
0: Are we supposed to find some kind of discrepancy in the accusation um, brought by this uh, this particular officer against against the the the, the condemned man? Are, are we supposed to find it a discrepancy that the man sat up and yelled at him something intelligible?
2: Well, the officer seems to be bilingual because he can talk to the soldier and he can talk to the explorer.
0: Oh, that's true. Okay, all right. I, I I just I just wondered about that because I, I I kept wanting to, I, I wanted there to be a discrepancy.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: if 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 that if that makes sense. No, that makes um, good sense. That makes good sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like I like your comparison to um, uh, the Sepoy Rebellion. The use of of populations of people who are from there, wherever there is. Um, mm-hmm. As your kind of means of keeping order um, between the colonial power and, you know, those who are who are under it. So that at the end of the of the of the story, there's not really that much difference between the soldier and the condemned. Um, it's just one happens to be in favor of the colonial power and the other isn't. They're really mm-hmm. kind of interchangeable and they will do the job of interchanging themselves if you're not paying close attention
2: right and the soldier doesn't speak French which indicates that he's probably a an indigenous conscript rather than a
0: someone from France right right and that's you know that that's uh, that, that that I think is the telling point I was assuming that this was happening in in um, what would have been I i I don't know at this time would they have called it French Indochina probably mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, given the given the climate and all the rest of it, but I don't know. Yeah, well, the
1: the climate is great because they insist on wearing European military clothes, even though it's incredibly uncomfortable mm. for the colonizers themselves. Be- because <laughs> Which, I mean, that's a that's a home. detail true to life. What were you saying, David?
0: Because it reminds them of home.
1: Right, but I mean, good lord! Yeah. Imagine wearing all that stuff in a hundred degrees.
0: Uh, mm. No. <laughs> Yeah, no. That's... So
1: so like somehow the the process of colonialism is is damaging to the bodies of the colonizers as well as to the colonized.
2: Oh, sure, sure.
1: The colonists and the natives, I think is the is the 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 terms that are usually used, are the terms that are usually used.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, the it, it's it's interesting how that Starts to make more of a difference when you start to pay attention to it, because initially, at least for me, the the dream likeness of of this of this story, and especially the fascination with the machine, keeps pulling my imagination away from making this any particular place or time. Mm. Um. You know, it keeps wanting to make it generic, but when you start paying attention, um, it, it starts to feel, um, I think, more, more, more horrifyingly historical.
1: <laughs> like I said, I, I have a very hard time remembering that this takes place on Earth and not on some sort of foreign planet. That's that's how surreal and well unearthly.
0: Yeah, And that's
2: interesting. It it felt very earthly to me just because they spoke French when they didn't want the locals to understand them. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I mean, it's funny. I can can concede the torture machine. It's the French that keeps me rooted.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That makes sense.
1: My students definitely resist this reading when we talk about this story, but I am pretty convinced that it's a religious parable. Do you see that, Grubbs, or am I... Talking out of my butt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I, I don't think you're talking out of your butt, for one thing, uh, because it does have, you know, in, in, in spite of the details that do anchor it in the real world, as we just talked about, uh, it does still have this, this kind of rootless, floating, um, as if it's ascending into the, into the level of types feel to it. Um, Just the
1: fact that nobody gets a Christian name, yeah. Everybody's defined by their role. Mm,
0: yes. Um. You know, the, the, my instinct is 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 to take it as some as some kind of a parable. And being a Christian, you know, the 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 first sort of parable that I think of is is you know the the Christian parable, um, though the the <laughs> the kingdom that this mystery tale represents is not one I want any part of. Um, there's there's this, um, I don't know, I, I think there could be a, we, a, a kind of appropriation of some Christian language. Um, the beatific vision that's seen by the one who's tortured, um, who in this moment they see beyond... Our mundane reality and they understand a truth that is unspeakable and unreadable. um, You know, that, that kind of edges over into religious categories. Um, The, I, I I kept thinking um, of Colossians two and uh, I don't know if I, I, again, I'm, I'm just going to pitch, you know, I'm going to do my best to <laughs> find things. Um, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And I'm just going to translate circumcision as cut. In him also you were cut with a cutting made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the cutting of Christ So, you know, I at least have a category for being able to put together this idea of, of a, these the image of a cutting in the flesh, that 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 cuts away something in me, but also brings something in me alive, of this of this idea of the merging of law and body in the moment of execution, um, with the legal demands nailed to the cross. I mean, I I've I've got. I've got this scripture that puts some of these ideas together, um, but I don't think Kafka is just showing us that. Um, it's it, it feels more like a more like an appropriation, more like a a borrowing of those kinds of categories with a perverse reuse of them. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I, absolutely!
0: I, I was telling my students about uh, talking about uh, an an article. With them uh, a couple of days ago it was uh published on the scriptorium daily blog uh, it's it's an article about the bit from Harry Potter um, the first book when Voldemort kills and drinks the unicorn's blood mm. and uh, uh, Adam Johnson is the 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 Tory guy that that wrote this um he quotes the passage and says, Atonement themes resound through this passage, death, crime, blood, life, price, purity, salvation, and curse, to name a few. Reorganize these words slightly, and you have a gospel message. Um, but the slight matters immensely, for what we have here is an evil grasp at a desperate and demonic salvation. Um, Augustine teaches Augustine teaches us that any good thing can be corrupted or perverted, and that is powerfully affirmed here in the first uh, of Rowling's series, the same elements are present. All the same ingredients factor in, but something is wrong and deeply perverse. And I mm-hmm. would say that there's something like if 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 I wanted to make some kind of bridge between um, Christian theology and and this story, it would be in the kind of deeply perverse and wrong rearrangement of some of the same ideas. Hmm. But again, what do you make of Kafka, man?
2: (laughs) Well, just running what you just said, running with what you just said, David, I mean, I I think that uh, if you think back to my childhood, and I don't know, by the time Michael was aware of things, this might have abated, but the great panic, uh, at least in the Midwest, over uh, satanic cults and, you know, teenagers joining satanic cults, if you look at their symbolism and if you look at their rituals and so on and so forth, they're almost always like you were talking about sort of travesty versions of Christian Mm -hmm. rituals. Right. Uh, and I think, I I think you're right that, I mean, we see a lot of that sort of thing, uh, going on in here. Uh, and I know I keep going back to the last page of the story, but I mean, it, it, it keeps, uh, it keeps beckoning to me that, uh, the priest would not let the old commandant be buried. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, there's definitely a sense here that the old commandant is, at least in the imagination of priests, a fairly straightforward antichrist. Mm -hmm. Uh, We cannot let him be buried in sacred ground, so what his adherents do is create this sort of satanic cult around him, where they create a burial place for him in the tea garden, and they come up with prophecies about his return, and, you know, uh, all of these things that, again, because of when I grew up and where I grew up, I guess... Uh, I associate with the sort of, you know, anxiety about satanic cult, right? You know, this is an Mm -hmm. Antichrist figure, and the disciples of Antichrist are waiting for him to come back. And you find out that the soldier uh, is a disciple of Antichrist, I mean, just to the extent that the officer was, but because he is local, uh, you know, you don't hear him say so until the end of the story. Uh, So, I mean, it's a... I I would take it a step further than you, David. I I agree that, uh, we've got a travesty of the gospel going here. I would say we also have a fairly, I mean, fairly straightforward for Kafka at the very least, uh, antichrist figure in the old commandant. Hmm. And I mean, honestly, in my mind that even more than the physical reality of the machine itself, uh, is what makes me identify with the explorer when he runs, not walks down those stairs and gets on that boat. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Get out of Dodge, man.
1: I'll also point out there's a substitutionary atonement in the story. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is the condemned man is essentially pardoned, and the officer takes on his punishment. Mm-hmm. But I mean that's a that's a diabolical parody, obviously of the of the Christian doctrine. Yeah. I I certainly did not mean to suggest at all that like this is some sort of quasi Christian story. If anything, it's an anti Christian story. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just interesting to me how much religious imagery there is in it
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. for those who have ears to hear.
0: Well, and the the definitely religious um, sense of of the way the old commandant would assemble everyone in order to watch this this sacrifice, in which mm. you know in in which the punishment of the condemned becomes. Um, almost a kind of sacramental moment in which, you know, let the little children come to watch the execution. I, you know, it's, it's horrifyingly religious, um, in a very part of darkness, heart, heart of darknessy kind of way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Agreed.
1: let's well, just... I suspect this story is ultimately pretty close to inexhaustible. So as we go out, I want to hear what parable readings I've left out of this, uh, of this list. And Nathan, we'll start with you and then just pass it over to Grubbs.
2: The question that kept occurring to me, and uh, because it's a Kafka story, I imagine I never got an answer, is why an explorer, rather than a bureaucrat or a military officer or some other figure, was the one who was visiting the island. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I went to sort of metaphorical connotations of exploration, uh, let's explore the possibility of this or that, let's explore this idea, uh, let's explore the depths of human depravity, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, this idea that um, it's an explorer rather than a government official who is coming here, I think speaks to this idea that the famous are sometimes called on to be moral arbiters. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, this might be, I I think it still works in the early 20th century that, you know, people who are held up as sort of the intrepid adventurer types, we attribute to them, uh, a sort of purity of motive and a purity of spirit, uh, so that we are supposed to take this explorer, at least the beginning of the story before he, you know, plays Saul to, uh, the officer, Stephen, um, we're supposed to take him as someone who has, uh, seen broad spans of the world. Uh, someone who knows human reality in a spectrum of forms, uh, mm-hmm. and who ultimately should know better. Uh, and I think honestly, I would not have been as horrified at his complicity in the, Self-execution of the officer, had he been a bureaucrat or a military officer. So ultimately, you know what seems like just an oddity at the beginning of the story becomes uh, really pretty important by the end.
0: Mm-hmm. Building, uh, building off of that is the the explorer's attitude. Uh, that's it seems to be very kind of prime directive-y, <laughs> which is that. I, the foreigner, cannot interfere with or judge the local custom, mm-hmm. um, which sounds very nice and tolerant, but it is also, frankly, kind of patronizing. Mm-hmm. And um, and seems to come with it this idea that oh yes, this is a horrific and um, and unjust system, but. Um, what else can we expect from these benighted heathens and they might as well just rot in it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, there's, there's that kind of, of the, the exoticizing of the foreign in a way that then relativizes their, um, their, their value. Um, One might even say their rights as human beings um, that, that makes too easily palatable, the suffering of others uh, inflicted by um, oppressive regimes simply because it is in this foreign place. And who are we to judge? Um, you know, which which I think is is I, I I think is a pretty horrific kind of attitude, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. That's all I got, man. This is, this is the first time I've ever met this story. And so <laughs> pretty much mo- all of the complex thinking that I've been doing about it has been since um, 10 o'clock last night. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> well, uh, listeners, if we've left anything out, and I'm sure we have, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. David, what's on tap for next week?
0: Well, uh, this past weekend, uh, the weekend of October the 1st, was my wife's birthday. And uh, for that, we went to the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Had a great time. uh, But that got me thinking about museums. So that's what we'll be talking about next time, museums.
1: Good times. Uh, The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. Amberly Copeland is our intern. For David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.